Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to be returning to one of our favorite subjects, yours and mine alike, uh, taking a, a break from Donald Trump and geopolitics, and we're going back to the media. In particular, we're going to be focusing on uh, CGTN. Now, if that acronym doesn't sound familiar to you, it's because there's be- recently been a name change in the world of Chinese media. It used to be known as CCTV, which was China Central Television. Uh, many of you may know that because there's CCTV America, CCTV Africa, there's CCTV World, all of these CCTVs around the world. Now, the Chinese would like you to think that this is their equivalent of the BBC or Al Jazeera. Uh, but now they are known as CGTN, China Global Television News. And uh, it's the same thing, just a different brand. Um, but they're very different animals than Al Jazeera and BBC, in part because Unlike those broadcasters, which are state-owned, but not always state-controlled. So, for example, VOA, which is managed by the Broadcasting Board of Governors of the United States, is definitely state-owned and increasingly state-controlled. The BBC has a very kind of distant relationship from the state, even though it's funded mostly by uh, license fees and taxes. But in China, it's a little bit different because it's actually not even state-owned. Media in China is party controlled by the Communist Party, which is the supreme political power in China. The state is actually an entity of the party or a subset of the party in the power dynamic. And media falls under party control. So really in one very important sense here, uh, this is a different animal than what we see with other state broadcasters around the world. And Kobus, I don't think that important subtlety is actually very well known. Yes, there's a second important subtlety that's also important to keep in mind. That is that on the one hand, um, CGTN, which I can never keep that straight, but uh, it, it is it, it does operate as the voice of China um, in the outside world and in Africa particularly uh, very strongly. However, it is also trying to compete in the international news ecosystem. So it is competing in the in the same market as, as the BBC, as CNN, and Al Jazeera. So it has a kind of a hybrid job to do where it is both representing the, the state or the party and having to actually do a news a news and reporting service service work. Now, here's what's very interesting and we're going to talk about this with our guest coming up. You know, I I've been a China nerd now for 30 years and for a long time I used to live in the United States and CGTN or CCTV whatever you want to call it has amazing distribution in the United States on many of the cable carriers, Time Warner Cable, Comcast, DirecTV, albeit it's on the digital platform and it's a little bit high up. Uh, but it's painful to watch, and I never watched it, and I never, ever met anybody who watched it. We had uh, your colleague, uh, Kobus, Bob Wakesa, who's done a lot of research on CCTV. Uh, we had him on the show a couple years ago, and one of the questions I asked him was, have you ever met anybody who's actually watched this thing? And he would say, yes, there is. But when you say, Kobus, that they're competing with C- CNN and BBC and Al Jazeera, those channels have a lot of viewers. Now, there is no audience data for these international networks because there's no ratings for Botswana. There's no ratings for, uh, you know, South Sudan. So the TV networks use these kind of false metrics to show how popular they are by saying how many homes they are distributed in. And so they say we're available in 150 million homes, you know, throughout Africa or around the world. And that doesn't actually tell you how many people are actually watching. 
But today we're not going to talk about what CCTV creates in terms of content and whether people are watching or the, the business model or whatnot. Today, for the first time, we're actually going to go inside CGTN. And this is really, you know, a very rare and unique opportunity to understand the inner workings of a Chinese media entity, in part because, you know, the Chinese are not very well known for letting Westerners or anybody in, particularly researchers or journalists, to better understand how they do things. And so we are thrilled to have back on the show somebody who we've had on, oh, I'd say about two years ago almost now, Melissa. Melissa yeah. Lefkowitz is a doctoral student in New York University's PhD program. Uh, she's pursuing her, her degree in sociocultural anthropology, where she's doing research on young Chinese living and working in Nairobi, Kenya. Welcome back to the program, Melissa. Thank you so much for having me, Eric and Kobus. It's great to be here. <laughs> Kobus? Um, yeah, I'm here. Sorry. <laughs> Can you hear me? Everybody. Uh, PhD program. Uh, she's pursuing her, her degree in sociocultural anthropology, where she's doing research on young Chinese living and working in Nairobi, Kenya. Melissa, welcome back to the show. Uh, we had you on, I think, about a year, year and a half ago for a documentary that you did in southern China. Is that correct? That is correct. And you had me on twice, actually, that year, which was fun. That's right. You know, so we're we're thrilled to have you back. Now you've done this kind of I'm not going to call it an expose because I think that's the wrong way of looking at it, but a research project yeah. that looked inside the the management and the operation of the CGTN. Tell us a little bit about kind of what was the inspiration for the project and, and kind of give us the big 30,000 foot kind of overview of it. <laughs> um, so basically, I had done my master's thesis looking at the uh, back in 2012 on the visual representation of Africans in Chinese mass media from the Mao era to the present. Um, and basically there, I mean, it definitely had to leapfrog because I would say that like there was a lot during the Mao era and then not a lot in like the 80s and 90s and then like a lot after FOCAC kind of thing post 2000. But um, when I when I left that project, I felt like there was that was just when CCTV Africa, which it was called, you know, at the time was um, launching in Nairobi. And I felt like the next step to this is really to understand how the I, how the imaginary of Africa is being co-produced by both Chinese um, social actors and Kenyan social actors or, you know, professionals. Um, and and that was really the inspiration for the project. And I just really wanted to get in there and see what was going on. Um, and it turned out the project to be less about the images that were being produced and about the, the, the ways that they were being produced and sort of the, the tone of the production and, and why people were there. Like just, it began, yeah, it, be, it became something else. It began as something and it, it morphed as research usually does, right? So. And so you made the interesting point that there's actually quite a lot of research about CCTV in Africa, but that most of it comes from either international relations or media studies perspectives, and that you felt that you needed to actually be on the ground and actually interact with the actual people in the office. Um, why did you feel that, and what, what did you gain by actually being there? It's a great question. Um, I guess what I felt with the IR work is that they kind of – start with a very they kind of start with their answer which is like this is soft power kind of thing um and you know i'm i'm kind of interested in the idea 
I guess of soft power. I, I think it, the, the term is used way too often, but like, it's not to say that that isn't like a good category to like inquire into and, you know, but, but that's sort of what the end is. That's a T loss of it. And then the, the media studies work, I guess, is is really diverse, and there's so much good stuff going on. Giovanna Pippin actually just sent me a great article that she wrote, and I met a lot of people who are working on these really excellent analyses. Um, but what I think is missing sometimes is that it becomes very divorced from kind of the the work that goes into making the work, and it sometimes when you kind of are just you looking at these images, you can kind of pin you you kind of can put all the authorship onto this state media outlet called CCTV Africa, but really kind of who these authors are and kind of what the the mission is, I had a sense was much more muddled. And um, yeah, so I just really wanted yeah. to get in there and just to really kind of know what that messiness was. Um, yeah, you wanted to get to the, the human side of the story of who are the people in their stories, kind of who, you know, all yeah. these people coming together. You, let me just, just for the benefit of our our listeners, give a little bit of background on what you did there. You spent sure. two months in Nairobi uh, yeah. and they gave you access for two months. So you didn't, you were in a covert kind of undercover employee, you know, trying to report on this. And, and it's a little surprising to me, to be honest with you, because um, Chinese companies, much less state-owned or party-owned companies, um, are typically not that welcoming of foreign researchers. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. But you interviewed 11 employees from throughout the organization, seven mm -hmm. Kenyans, two British, one South African, one Chinese. Uh, mm -hmm. But the most telling point about you know your, your whole study was that it didn't include very many Chinese perspectives, particularly from the management. Why was that? Right. Well, because the day day one of research, I was told, and we will not be going on record for your research. <laughs> it's really as simple as that. Which <laughs> so is ironic in a news organization, of course, of all places that they won't go on record to talk about what they're doing. I mean, it's exactly. just the hypocrisy. We are journalists and we will not be talking to you. Um, <laughs> So it's really, and there were, I mean, such kind people though that I met, like uh, who are, of course, Chinese, and and as you read, you know, like the managing, um, the managers, you know, that that whole level, like it, uh, you know, is comprised of Chinese, um, I guess, so media the senior, professionals, the senior executives, the senior executives, right. Yeah, well, the senior executives, but then it's like the supervisors too. Like there are, there were Kenyan journalists who were, or I, I guess I'm trying to think about the right, like they're Kenyan media professionals because not everyone's a journalist, you know, who who get who have supervisory roles. But every section of CCTV Africa, like there's like the news section, or um, I guess there, I'm trying to think about each section, but it. Every um, section has to have a Chinese um, professional overseeing that area. So, yeah, but to, yeah. to be fair here, though, yeah. uh, I've spent 25 years in journalism at France 24, BBC, AP, CNN, you know, the alphabet soup of international news. Sure. Um, and my last job at France 24, you know, I was the editor in chief of the digital division and I was a foreigner. I spoke fluent French. Um, I read, write fluent French, but I was still a foreigner. And I didn't survive very long. It was about a year. And that's all run by French. Um, I don't think there are senior foreigners 
in the senior executive leadership of the BBC. I know that Al Jazeera has become far more Arabic now. So I'm not sure that that's that unusual now with state and, and party-owned uh, broadcasters. Yeah. No, and I find, and that's really kind of the take that I have on this is that I'm not interested in sort of exceptionalizing CCTV either. I'm very interested in, you know, it, it's something I was pointing out, but not making making value judgments about. And I think what's very important, you know, about work like this is that if somebody reads this, they go and they, they do some more comparative work, you know. Um, but I I do think that it's I, – I think that it was slightly problematic, though, and I think it's probably problematic in every organization, probably, to kind of have that association between national belonging and and power with regard to hierarchy. But I'm not trying to say that it's exceptional, necessarily. What's very interesting for me in all of that is the role of the African journalists themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, your research seems to show that that – it's not a uniform a uniform experience, um, and there's you know some seem to seem relatively happy, but there's a lot of caveats there, and they they, they seem to be working under quite complex circumstances. I wonder if you could like unpack like what the experience is like to be a Kenyan journalist at CCTV. Totally, and that was so. That was I think when you're doing research, you're kind of at least for me, right? I think well, everyone I guess approaches the research in a different way. What was what I always find hard is when you kind of want everyone to be saying the same thing almost because that would then help you find a pattern. But you go somewhere and you find in, that people are individuals and they're come they're saying different things. And then you have to sort of figure it out from there. And, and what I found entering is that there were many people uh, who were Kenyan, whom I interviewed, who were just so happy to be there They're for just different reasons. I mean, one was like... You know, so a lot of these guys, like, so out of the nine um, Kenyans that I interviewed, um, or let's see, sorry. Um, seven. No, out of the seven Kenyan nationals I interviewed, six had experience working in Kenyan media outlets. So what what that basically meant is that people had been working either at Kenyan television network, KTN, NTV, which is Nation TV, and Citizen TV, Um, And those are domestic media outlets. And people were very happy to be out of them who who were enjoying their time at CCTV Africa. And they cited, you know, many um, reasons that are quite relatable, like they were working hours that were too long. Their roles weren't very well demarcated. Um, They yeah, the and what what maybe is perhaps the most important piece of this is that and. The technology, like the technology, wasn't up to date. That and and what's different about CCTV Africa was that their hours were known, their roles were known, and they had everything that they needed to get their jobs done. And so that was very important to people who were both creating content and who weren't creating content, like the guys who just you know were working in the broadcast, um, you know, room behind the scenes. Um, and kind of just making sure that everything was was going smoothly, right? Those guys were very pleased to have everything up to date, 21st century kind of. I mean, that's how they said it to me, right? So I was I was 
struck by that. And then the people who weren't as satisfied, they had their own reasons, but they also had a certain amount of pragmatism that I also found surprising. Like they weren't su- many people I talked to weren't surprised that a state media outlet would enforce uh, certain types of censorship because, of course, it's a state media outlet and that's what you do. Um, and that that was just obvious to them. Um, yeah. And and that well, was really, what? really. Let's pick up on this censorship question because um, one of the most interesting quotes that you bring up was, uh, and I'll read this. He said, "We're, you know, one of the employees, and I don't remember who it was, uh, what nationality, but he or she said, we're not very nuanced in our coverage of China-specific issues. And that came as a surprise to this employee because they feel a little bit that they were kind of hoodwinked, that they came into this big international news organization and they thought they were going to be able to cover the world as a proper journalist. And then they run smack head into, um, you know, what the real purpose of CGTN is or CCTV is that it is to kind of be the voice of China, the voice of the Communist Party of China. And this brings up this this interesting challenge uh, that that Chinese media have. The Chinese spend billions of dollars every year on on propaganda. Interestingly, in China, the word propaganda and censorship, those two words um, are not bad words. You know, where I come from, the United States, those are terrible words, propaganda and censorship. But in China, those are just part of the vernacular. But it does highlight this very interesting contradiction. And it's the same contradiction that's playing out in the film industry because the film industry is a very, very important business now for the Chinese. And they want to export their movies around the world. But you brought up this question of soft power. And on the one hand, the United States is extremely effective in soft power through its news and its movies and its TV and yet the Chinese aren't doing it. And I would listen to a podcast this week uh, hosted by Bonnie Glazer of the China Power Project. She's If you haven't checked out that podcast and you're interested in anything China, she is the bomb. And it's great. Uh, and this week she interviewed an old professor of mine, actually, Stanley Rosen of the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, uh, who was commenting on the film business. So again, this is about the film business, but there are some striking parallels to the TV business and the work that Melissa did at CGTN. Let's take a listen. Uh, One of the reasons, ironically, again, why the U.S. is so strong and China is so weak is that Hollywood films are completely separate from the American government. You can hate the American government because of its foreign policy. You can hate Donald Trump or anybody, but you can still enjoy, even the jihadis enjoy Hollywood films. Whereas in the case of China, its soft power based on film is so weak because soft power is inseparable in China from government actions. So no matter what kind of films they try to promote, if the Chinese do something in the South China Sea or in Tibet or in Xinjiang or over Taiwan that people don't like, it inevitably hurts its soft power because people don't see a real separation there. So certainly China cares a great deal about image and branding. They spend over $10 billion a year on promoting soft power. They want not just a domestic audience for their films, but the international audience. They promote propaganda films at home with socialist core values. The problem with China is, in terms of soft power and many other things, is that there are a lot of contradictions in their policies. In other words, if you look at what the head of propaganda, now called publicity in China, says, we want our films to have 
control as much as possible of our domestic market, certainly more than 50%. That's a politically determined figure, 50%. And we also want to have our film successful overseas to kind of sell China, to make people like China. But at the same time, he says they have to have socialist core values. Well, if you try to make films with socialist core values, not only will they have no international market, but they'll have very little domestic market as well. So they're faced with that dilemma. So, Melissa, I get the sense that that same contradiction is at play at CGTN, where on the one hand, they want to have socialist core values, which is to promote propaganda of the Chinese state party and whatnot and their role in Africa. But on the other hand, they're trying to present themselves as a competitor to Al Jazeera and, you know, really being very, very, um, you know, relevant in people's lives. Did you pick up on that kind of tension in the newsroom and within the organization at CGTN in Nairobi? Yeah, well, so he definitely did not pick up on it in the newsroom. You know, it's very, everyone's very collegial and there's, if there's a problem, like I wasn't able to see it. Um, And that's, that's kind of important to note because from a research perspective, like just doing participant observation really wasn't enough because people are going to sort of operate in a very specific way um, in a specific environment. So when I got, you know, off site and at a cafe with one of these journalists, I, I talked to news anchors and I talked to people who were producers and things like that. Um, I was able to hear that there was this frustration at having been told, you know, uh, uh, see another tagline again for CCTV Africa was like, African news for African people, right? So it was supposed to be this this like uh, alternative to BBC or Al Jazeera, who who's who are doing African news for their publics. And so you have these guys coming in who are thinking that they're going to be able to cover whatever they want, and then they start writing and they find that there's red ink all over their work. And I think, um, yeah, there was there was definitely. For, see that that was that was the complexity of it. Some people said, "Oh, I could really write what I want and do what I want," and then others said, "You know, really, we can't, and it's a problem. And why aren't we? You know, why? Yeah. And I mean, yeah. I had a really, I had some really interesting ethnographic experiences where I was I'm kind sure. of yeah. <laughs> you know, so this, so Kobus, I'd like to get your take on it because you're a media scholar in Africa, and and I think it'd be helpful for people listening to this show to kind of hear what this what socialist core values actually sounds like. So if you've never listened or watched uh, Chinese kind of state-controlled media, this this is a clip that I, I picked up just today. And I just went onto YouTube and, you know, said, okay, let me find one clip from a news broadcast from one of the African broadcasts of CGTN. And it'll give you a flavor of a lot of the news that they do. Well, China and South Sudan do indeed have a history of friendship and cooperation since the African country gained its independence in 2011. CGTN's Susan Mongeli takes a look at those ties. In February this year, China and South Sudan agreed to boost cooperation in the health sector. That includes enhanced knowledge sharing, capacity building and hospital-to-hospital collaboration. The deal will allow Chinese health specialists to set up experimental operations and management units in the East African nation. It's just painful to listen to. I mean, I can actually feel myself sinking under the desk. I mean, it's not news, okay? And this is where, 
you know, and I feel bad because I know I have I have a, I have several friends who work for CCTV America and CGTN America, and and even one friend at CGTN in in Nairobi, and and I don't mean to undermine what they're doing, but it's just not news. This is party propaganda, and mm-hmm. you can feel the party apparatchiks kind of writing this in Beijing and kind of s- distributing it out to the rest of the world. So you know, I kind of want to push against that a little bit, though. Okay, go go go. So I think that in. So what I found from the journalists, and this is partially why I think that they were conflicted, I mean, is that if they had to cover, they they actually thought that they could do more when there was content that wasn't directly related to China, like they had more breadth, actually. Um, And this is something I heard both from people who were... um, See, not everyone had had experience in other places, but there was was a British... um, reporter who said that she had worked for France 24 and and other places. Um, And she had said that actually she she was positive that they were able to cover more news from the African continent than other international media outlets. And that that was invigorating for her. But on the Kenyan end, I mean, and on the Kenyan end, not like as a, you know, counterpoint to this, there was also this sense of, well, if we're covering something that doesn't, of course, everything kind of connects back to China, right? Because you have to understand, like, of course, these Chinese producers are choosing these stories for a reason, whatever. But it's there There were times and they were able to cover pieces in ways that they wanted to cover pieces. And they felt like they wouldn't get a lot of writing, just like, you know, one word that they didn't know was a forbidden word would be crossed out or something. It was really these stories like that had to do with like the South China Sea or something that where, you know, their stories would just get obliterated. You know, there's a there's a there's an example in the paper of kind of trying to cover the South China Sea's dispute and not getting any clips from The Hague. Nothing about what the arbitration said, nothing from the Philippines after the uh, UNCLOS arbitration decision came out. And they only had. Xi Jinping and a soundbite from uh, the you know Foreign Minister Wang Yi, and that was really that was that was given to me as an example of how bad it can get, but it it wasn't and it was not an example of how it is all the time. And so I, I just I just wanted to kind of put that out there that people, you know, people aren't there to just kind of push out things they hate. I think that some people are very committed and have a sense of what it means to do journalism and felt that they could sometimes do the work that they wanted to do. And I think um, it's also, you know, from from their perspective, or I'm guessing, um, as someone who's, who's worked, myself has worked in, in uh, African state-owned broadcasting in South Africa, that's not that surprising, I think, for someone who comes out of state broadcasting in Africa to see that kind of one-sided coverage. It's depressing, and no one wants to do it, but but I think, you know, kind of people are people are very used to seeing that in, in, in African journalism as well. So it might well be also that they, you know, kind of, it's not such a, like, blinding surprise to them as it maybe would have been to, to other journalists from other countries. Well, exactly. yeah. That, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, no, just very quickly, just to, you know, Going back to my own experience at CNN, France 24, and other newsrooms, and here in Vietnam where I used to run a newsroom as well, um, you know, I think people in the West get a little sanctimonious about censorship in other parts of the world. And, you know, what I've learned is that in places like Vietnam and China, the censorship is political. At France 24, the censorship that I ran into was cultural. So there Mm. was distinct biases towards Francophone Africa. 
even though there were much better news stories in Anglophone or, or, or Arab-speaking Africa. Um, and, and they would allocate resources disproportionately to French speaking Africa because, mm-hmm. well, they speak French and that's what France is supposed to do is to extend its influence of France 24 to French speaking Africa. Um, mm-hmm. I, that was happening all the time. And so to me, the end of the day, a, a bias is the equivalent of censorship. And in the United States at CNN and other places, it's a corporate censorship. You don't mm-hmm. insult your advertisers. You know, mm. there there are – if you watch local news in the United States, there will never be an investigation of the used car business because they're right. one of the, the biggest advertisers on local TV news. That's At so- CNN, we never did any investigations of the tobacco industry until Congress picked up the issue first and it was safe because Kraft yeah. at that time, which owned RJR Reynolds, was one of the largest advertisers on Turner Broadcasting. So censorship materializes in different ways, but at the end of the day, you are adjusting your content based on an external force, whatever that may be, cultural, political. My frustration, though, is the hypocrisy that comes out of it, where CCTV pretends that it is covering the world, and CCTV Africa positions itself as a kind of combination of China and Africa together, and yet you don't see any coverage of you know, the ivory issue of Chinese corruption, of Sampa, of all these kind of these wonderful stories about Chinese illegal logging, that would be very interesting. That's why people would turn to CCTV. But of course, you will never see that on CCTV because it is prime, its primary fur- purpose is not to inform, but it's about propaganda. And, that, and I use that in the worst sense of the word, not in the Chinese positive sense of the word. Uh, what's your reaction? Well, I, I agree. And I think that just kind of going back to the pragmatism piece, which I which I picked up on earlier, I just want to kind of give a bit of a sense of the context in Nairobi, which is that the domestic media outlets there um, are, it's very well known that they're run by people who are very closely affiliated with specific um, political parties, if not parties, then, then leaders. Um, and many people know, for instance, that like um, Arab Moy was, um, you know, connected to one of the the state networks and things like that. So there was like this this kind of bias toward Kalenjin related interests. Um, and so people were coming out of a a environment where that was it was already known that you know biases would be created based on certain types of affinities, um, political mostly. So I just wanted to put that out there. But um, the hypocrisy piece, yeah, I mean, it's very, I think it's very, very, very frustrating. It's like, you know, I kind of, why can't you say, hey, this is news for us. We're actually here to promote our interests. And so thank you for coming on board. And thank you for also watching. No, no, no. You're, you'd be terrible you. in marketing. Melissa, you I have know. no future in marketing whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, you know, <laughs> stick that with that. Pain. It's such a painful thing to sort of say that you're going for, but it's it's also painful to our ears, right? And yeah. I think we have to remember, this is my anthropological side. You know, it's like, to our ears, it's painful. But to what extent, again, as I was saying with my interlocutors, like it sometimes doing the work was very difficult, but there was a pragmatism there. And I'm not sure what it would be like for um, someone who's completely embedded in a Chinese media world. Because, well, yeah. Y- yeah, I mean, I've, I've been embedded for, I was embedded four years in a Vietnamese 
uh, media world, which is very similar in terms of kind of the censorship and the control. But the thing that gave me sustenance was that a lot of people were watching my shows and the programs that we produced. And again, you know, Cobus, this to me is the, I think would be far more demoralizing is not that the Chinese censor their news because yes, everybody for the most part has, there's very few forms of pure information and news. Less so today in our confirmation bias, Facebook-fueled world that we live in. But mm -hmm. I, I guess my bigger problem is the fact that it's a lie that a lot of people are watching this because nobody's watching this. I mean, Melissa, in your research, you know, did you find anybody? Yeah, Cobus, did you find – you know anybody who's watching this stuff? Okay. I didn't do audience uh, tallies, um, but, you know, just anecdotally in teaching on, on um, C CGTN um, for, for a long time, I frequently ask my students who all have satellite TV, um, which carries two um, CGTN channels in South Africa. I always ask them, you know, who, has, who watches it regularly? No one does ever. Um, who has ever watched it? Frequently no one even even then, no one raises their hand. So, I, you know, generally, I would I would assume it's not very popular. Um, yeah. But yeah, again, we don't know. That to me is the more demoralizing point. <laughs> I have a sense of this a little bit because um, I was staying in an apartment um, with um, two night two Kenyan women, and we would watch DSTV together. Uh, well, DSTV, I guess, is one of the provider, cable providers, right? So they yes, had so the big South African company. Yes. And yeah. And so we would um, watch television um, through that service. And I would turn to CCTV Africa because it was for it, interesting to me for my research, but it ethnographically it was interesting to see what people were watching and no one would ever turn to CCTV Africa. I mean, it is so not even on someone's radar as like something to flip to. Um, and it, it just doesn't so. No, because Kobus, you bring up the good point. It's boring. And I think if you watch African news, I mean, particularly Nigerian news and, and even Kenyan news, it's a lot more salacious. It's a lot more fast-paced. It's a lot more kind of, you know, the, the tempo is faster. And, and the pace of, C of CGTN is just like, you know, it's again like that clip we were listening to. You just want to go to sleep. Um, you know, let's go to your conclusions here. And, and I'm, I'm about to insult you, but I don't mean to. It's actually going to come as a compliment, Melissa. So bear with me. Three sure. conclusions here. Security protocols for more reporting in the field. That was one conclusion that you had. Uh, they want to Im improve interpersonal relationships and the employees want more professional training. So in your conclusion, those were the three kind of action items that you picked up on. And the reason I'm going to um, – it may come off sounding like an insult is like those are pretty unremarkable conclusions. And I think that's very interesting in one sense. And it comes back to the earlier part of our conversation that the the human issues going on at CCTV, never mind the politics and the content and the soft powers we talked about, but the human issues and the management and the leadership issues, to me as a kind of veteran of this business, seem quite unremarkable, very typical. In fact, I think you could go to 25 newsrooms around the world and you'd find exactly those same three conclusions. Completely. And I think something one of my um, professors told me recently, because it is kind of, it's tough when you go somewhere and you're you're like, oh, you know, where's this big meaty thing I was looking for they didn't get? And she said, you know, negative data is data too. 
And it's a really important point to think like, oh, I've seen this before. This isn't anything. It's like, no, if you've seen this before, it's something. You just have to think about what it is. And I think it's that the fact that CCTV Africa is somehow like something else is very important because so much of the work, not not the good work, not the good, you know, I would say that there's a bifurcation between good and bad work in China and Africa, but some, some of the not so remarkable work um, in China and Africa really wants to exceptionalize China. And I think more work needs to be done to sort of situate some of these um, institutions within fields. Uh, and so one field could be like the international media, news, you know, media broadcasting, you know, sector in Nairobi, Kenya, for instance, and to do comparative work and to see the extent to which CCTV Africa is like or isn't like. Um, but the thing is, is that people are working there and you'll see also my conclusion are staying for years and aren't leaving. And of course, there's also the problem that BBC isn't hiring enough black Africans to work for them. But there's also the other issue that people are finding that it's better to work there than for domestic outlets, according to them, or that working for CCTV indexes something international that they want um, career wise or something like that, as opposed to domestic. So I think just needing we need to situate CCTV Africa in the field that it is also in. And you're also mentioning like more than just in Nairobi, like it can be situated within uh, international media uh, outlet, um, sec like more globalized sector, yeah. you know, I mean, or industry. It, it's, it's a job. I mean, and I know a lot of people yeah. at CNN in Atlanta and at France 24 in Paris who are miserable about, you know, their job, but there's not a lot of jobs in international media and international news. So people stay in particularly in places like Nairobi. The paper is Chinese Media Kenyan Lives, an ethnographic inquiry into CCTV Africa's head office. Of course, it's now CGTN. Uh, Melissa, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Eric and Kobus. It's been great. And Kobus, uh, boy, this was right up your alley today in media studies. And I, I'm just, uh, you know, you know, I, I don't mean to insult anybody who works at CCTV or CGTN. That's not my intention at all. I may have lost a couple friends after this show. Uh, but it is a complicated issue. It is one where the content does fall into a very complex matrix of information, news, propaganda, social media, kind of our expectations of news as well. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, audience pleasure is a very important part of that. And it's, you know, it's, 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 very, in, it's very interesting the effect that, that we see once audience pleasure falls out of the news equation. You know, and it's something that, that I think Chinese media needs to pay attention to. Well, we'd love to hear what your opinions are. Do you watch CGTN, CCTV Africa? Do you like it? Do you not like it? Do you think it's good? Um, you kind of heard what we have to think, particularly me on this subject. Um, but I'd like to hear what you have to think. Um, we have some great social media you know, platforms that you can engage the discussion on. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm closing in on 200,000 followers. Kobus, it's mind-boggling. Uh, 200,000 followers on LinkedIn. We've got 236,000 followers over on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Uh, by the way, 
if you don't want to kind of get too far in the mud on China Africa, you know, every day on social media, we have a fantastic newsletter that we send out every Monday. And in fact, last week's newsletter included Melissa's paper from the China Africa Research Initiative at Johns Hopkins University. We send out five articles plus a great paper like from people from Melissa. So it's a good way to stay on top of the issues without going in too deep. So you can can sign up there on our website and over on uh, our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And of course, if you want to follow this podcast, the best way to do it, go to your favorite podcast store. Just search for China, Africa, and we'll come up. And Kobus, a big month for us. We broke a record, 25,000 downloads last month in, uh, yeah. in February. So the show is getting, uh, is, is getting you know, wider distribution. We're very excited. We want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, coming up in a future episode, we are overdue to do this because we have a lot of new listeners and followers, and people have been asking us about us. And in fact, we've been accused, Melissa, you'll get a kick out of this, of being Chinese propaganda ourselves. So uh, we're going to answer that question coming up in a future edition of the show. But until then, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. 